Welcome to the Designing Music Now podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of creating music for video games and interactive media. I'm Dale Crowley. And I'm Chanel Summers. In our inaugural podcast, we will be speaking with Brian Schmidt, composer, sound designer, and sound technologist, and founder of Game Soundcom. Welcome to the Designing Music Now podcast. I'm Dale Crowley. And I'm Chanel Summers. And today we are honored to have Brian Schmidt with us. Brian Schmidt is the founder and creator of Game SoundCon. He is a 2008 recipient of Game Audio Network Guild's Lifetime Achievement Award. Brian has been creating game music sounds and cutting-edge game sound technology since 1987. With credit list of over 130 games and a client list including Zynga, Sony, Electronic Arts, Capcom, Sega, Microsoft, Data East, Namco, Sound Deluxe, and many others, Brian has used his combined expertise and experience in music composition, sound design, and deep technical knowledge to change the landscape of the game audio industry. Brian is a frequent and in-demand speaker on the creative, technical, and business aspects of game audio, having given literally hundreds of educational and inspirational talks at conferences all over the world. Events such as GDC, Microsoft's Game Fest, Sega DevCon, the AES Conference, and the esteemed institutions such as Yale University, Northwestern University, and DigiPen have invited Brian to share his knowledge and insight in the industry. So, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I probably should add Game SoundCon to that list now that I think about it. <laughs> That's probably a pretty important one, Brian. <laughs> Since, you know, you, you, had, you had a little something to do with it. Something. We'll definitely get into that in just a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you, Brian, how did you get started in music? And what are some of your earliest memories in childhood? Oh, in music in general. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up with a pretty musical family. Both my parents, in fact, were music teachers. Uh, my mom was a public school music teacher and my dad worked for universities, but also worked uh, in public school music education. Um, so I grew up around music. In fact, uh, my Father was a harpsichord player. My father was a uh, Baroque recorder player. My mom was a harpsichordist, and my dad owned a harpsichord. So that's how they actually got together. Uh, and we used to play uh, occasionally trio sonatas. I'd play viola da gamba, and they would play harpsichord and recorder. So that's definitely some of my fun memories for that. But uh, my dad's bizarrely enough, he never had more than about eighth grade math, but he got into sound technology back in the '60s. He was working on some educational projects with these new things called synthesizers and how you could make interesting sounds by, you know, uh, throwing some nuts and bolts into a wine bottle and shaking them around and recording it and slowing the tape down and turning it over to reverse the sound. And um, in fact, at around uh, the time that Bob Moog was putting a keyboard on synthesizers, my dad had told us one company, you know, he didn't want a keyboard on the synthesizer because that would give people uh, the thoughts of using Western music harmony with these new synthesizer things. Um, you know, hindsight, maybe that was a great educational decision, maybe not the best business decision he ever made. But uh, so, yeah, my dad grew up teaching me how to splice tape when I was like nine years old. And so that, that kind of stuff. I grew up around sound. Are you, a, are you a 45 degree or 90 degree splicer? Oh, a 45 degree splicer. <laughs> no, uh, no 90 degree splices. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to throw that one out there. Not a problem. And Brian, you have a master's in computer music at Northwestern University. Um, that means you've got the left brain and right brain 
education and uh, how do you how does that work for you and how does that how has that been helpful to have both sides of uh, your uh, brain working uh, in your career? I, th I think uh, just about everybody in game audio has uh, you know it's not the formal thing there's definitely a full left right brain kind of thing. Um, I went into school actually to study tuba hmm. uh, at Northwestern as an undergrad and. Uh, quickly realized that there were like two tuba openings and major symphonies over the next two decades and thought maybe that wasn't a good idea. Uh, so at the time, Northwestern had started this uh, computer music department. So I actually have uh, two undergrad degrees as well. I kept with a music degree, but also got a, a CS degree. And I find it really helps. Um, I mean, the, the joy for me is sticking them together because uh, there's all sorts of things that you can do, obviously, with computers to manipulate sound, which Back in the early 80s when this was, you know, when I was going through this, um, it was a little bit more open field and people hadn't figured out, you know, there was no Pro Tools. In fact, the Mac hadn't even been invented yet and there was no MIDI. So I think, you know, it was easy to see how this cool this would be going forward and just to see it play over the last three decades has been really fun. But I, I think everybody in game audio has that, that visceral connection with both creative side and sound as art and sound as something that moves people and makes people feel things and the technology side uh, again which gets thrust in our face in games um, where yeah it's great to have this vision now how do we make it happen within these technical things that uh, that the games kind of force us into well yeah and definitely understanding you know the physics of sound so not only like perception and our illusions and psychoacoustics, but, you know, how sound actually propagates. Oh, absolutely. And, and the number, you know, when um, last year, Perry Cook gave a talk at Game SoundCon, and, you know, it was a very kind of scientific, physics-based talk, and I mean, we get, you know, game audio people just kind of eat that kind of stuff up. Um, Chance Thomas, in his new book, uh, has some sections devoted to uh, neuropsychology, you know, uh, the neurophysics yeah. of uh, game audio, or just of sound in general, right? How does sound, how do we process sound internally as biological organisms? And, you know, how does it affect the different parts of our brain, the, the rational parts and the, the limbic system? And I think that, again, we're all kind of driven to these cool, science-y, artsy kind of questions where they, they just totally overlap. That's, that's kind of what we all do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um... Well, let's also talk about some of, uh, you know, your recent game audio projects and, you know, what you've been doing there and what's been really exciting you. Yeah, um, well, I, personally, I'm excited because I actually am just finishing up Game of Thrones pinball. Nice. Uh, which is, which is the, it's a, a, a real physical pinball machines, not the old, not, not a simulator. Um, so that was about 30, 35 minutes of original score on that kind of inspired by the, the theme, but um, uh, original score. And for me, that's the first pinball machine I've done since, boy, since I joined Microsoft, which was 98. Um, and pinball's your origin. Yeah, my, my very first job in the industry was, uh, right out of school, was working for a pinball company, uh, doing music and sound and exaggerating how much programming experience I had doing the 6800 <laughs> assembler. <laughs> But uh, so yeah, and real, Game of Thrones is, uh, has just been a blast to work on. Um, obviously, it's really fun music-wise because it's uh, it's fun to do kind of that big, rich, lots of 
there's no no shortage of battle music in uh, Game of Thrones pinball. Let's just say that. That'll be exciting. Um, and I'm, back to the old pinball wizard days. And I understand when you got your first job, one of the reasons that they hired you was you were such a good pinball player. It certainly didn't hurt. Um, <laughs> after the after my interview was over, uh, again, I I kind of fell into this job. Um, I was finishing up at Northwestern, and I knew Chris Graner, um, who was working at Williams at the time, and I uh, sort of knew Bill Parrott as well. And they're like, oh, we have this job opening for... Um, you know, someone who can write music and code assembly language, you know, why don't you come down and interview? And after my interview, they took me into a back room and asked if I wanted to play this pinball machine, which wasn't released yet. It was a F-14 Tomcat pinball. I remember it. I can picture it very vividly. And I had played pinball my whole life. My mom used to get upset at me for, you know, biking down to the university and going down to the game room and wasting all of my allowance money playing pinball. Or we'd go to Florida and I'd spend the whole vacation in the basement of the hotel playing pinball and so you know i'm, I'm pretty good um I, i'll beat most of the people who listen to this pinball one-on-one um, so uh i shouldn't I, I shouldn't place any bets or any any money like you, you seem like uh, i wouldn't do that all although um at uh, the game soundcon this year one of the speakers on the uh Audio director's panel, uh, Kristen from Riot, who was at Microsoft before. She apparently was a huge pinball fan, so I might not be able to say I can beat anybody in the room in pinball anymore uh, at GameSoundCon. Well, they now have pinball um, contests, and there are some people, I, I saw something on, it was a, a 60 Minutes or something, where this kid basically lives, breathes, and has you know become just this incredible pinball wizard. There's really been a huge resurgence of pinball over the last probably four or five years. Um, and I think part, part of that is the technology. Uh, part of it is, uh, you know, they have tournaments now where you can have national tournaments on the same game. Uh, and there's, you know, the internet has just provided this wonderful mechanism for letting people, you know, there's a lot of fans who were sort of isolated and now they're collected into a big community. And it's been really great for the industry. And, uh, it's it's funny the people I'm working with on Game Game of Thrones, um, are literally the same people I worked with when I was at Williams, which was 1987 to 1989. That's incredible. Uh, Steve Ritchie's the game designer. Uh, Gary Stern owns the company. Chuck Blake is doing hardware engineer. George Petro or um, George Gomez and uh, Lyman Sheets. All these people were people I worked with. About two and a half lifetimes ago, when they're they're making pinball machines, so. But it, it definitely helped that I was a good pinball player, because if uh, <laughs> if you go into and and being out, having been the other side of the fence, that makes total sense. You know, you want so people want people working on their projects, on their products, mm -hmm. on their games, who are passionate about yeah. the games they make. Passion, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and, people and a lot of times. On that note, I was just going to see, like, um, are there other projects you're working on? Or are there any projects you particularly enjoy to work on besides, you know, your passion pinball type of projects? Uh, I had a really good time. I just finished up a game with uh, John Shepard's new company, Shiver Entertainment. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, a game that Nexon is publishing mm -hmm. um, called Beasts vs. Bots. Uh, so I had a good time with that. Again, it was work, good to work with John again. I hadn't worked with him for, for quite a long time. 
Uh, I'm doing some kind of fun technical stuff too. I'm consulting for a company down in Florida who's doing a bunch of augmented reality stuff, and that's uh, that's that's a whole new ball of uh, ball of wax as far as audio is concerned. All these sort of fun kind of uh, unexplored territories to go into there. So I guess it's sort of yeah, you got my left brain and right brain going again. With, uh, <laughs> Great, doing, you know. Epic, yeah, epic no, battle music absolutely. for pinball, I, I, and then um, also scratching the technical head. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um, doing a lot of work myself um, in in the AR and VR space, so always love the left of center and orthodox type. Yeah, projects. well, Chanel, you and I remember the uh, the sound card wars of uh, you know the late '90s and early 2000s. You know, with Oriel and ESS and Creative and 3D Sound and yep. Then it kind of all fizzled away, and now all of a sudden, 3D sound is back with it. Here we are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here we are, and so, now and looking I, I at think things uh, are pretty different like uh, Two Big Ears and uh, Impulsonic and uh, it, Sound folks like that. It's 1997 all over again, except that we have much better kinds of. I think things are a, a lot more in our favor this time than uh, yes. And three for 3D audio than it was back then. Absolutely. That's a whole nother discussion to have. <laughs> well, great. So talk about Game SoundCon now. Let's uh, see, you know, basically tell me what was the origin and the history of the show? What, what gave you the idea to start it and when did it start and what was that like? I kind of got, you know, the notion of it actually kind of started, uh, you know, Chanel, I'm sure you remember these days well, uh, you know, Chanel and I were both putting on over 100,000 miles on United a year, flying around the world talking to people about Xbox Audio. Uh, you know, giving, you know, how, I counted up at one point, somewhere around 190 talks or something like that. And it's something that I just, I just really like to do is, is, you know, teach people about game audio. Um, I like to joke that one of the you know, people are like, why do, why do people talk about it so much what they do? It's like, I think there's so few people that understand what we do that whenever we find anybody who's interested a little bit, we just can't shut up about it because it's we're so excited about it. But so exactly. I've given a lot of these these kinds of educational talks at Microsoft. And also around that time, a big change happened in game audio. And that's happened when we moved uh, from like the PlayStation 1 Sega Saturn era to the PlayStation 2 slash Xbox era. And for audio, that meant we moved from CDs to DVDs. Um, and that really was the point at which uh, studio-recorded music became the norm in games. Uh, prior to that, you know, so, you know, with, with the original PlayStation, some games had Redbook Audio, had full fidelity studio audio. But game developers pretty quickly found other things to fill up that CD with, and music didn't, we couldn't do Redbook music anymore on those uh, for a lot of it. But when DVD happened, all of a sudden, um, anybody who could do music in a studio could now do music for games. And so I saw a lot of these extremely talented composers and sound designers start to come in from other industries, from film, from TV, from standard music production, from industrial films or commercials. And they all would stumble over the same kinds of things. Uh, technical issues, uh, technical limitations that we have in game audio, even in current X, you know, Xbox One, PlayStation 4 era, that they just didn't have any counterparts of in traditional media. 
or um, creative challenges, right? The whole notion of how do I score something that's going to be played for 40 hours and not make it boring? Um, how do I create music to an inherently nonlinear medium, video games, when music in itself is inherently linear? And the composers coming from linear media do great job scoring when they have full precognition of what's going to happen. So they know five minutes from now this thing is going to happen. They can score for that while they don't, they had no idea the kinds of tools and techniques that we use in games to let us give that illusion of a pre-rendered score, even though we don't know what's going to happen five minutes in the future. And so because I, everyone was stumbling over these same things, I thought, hey, I think it would be really good and really useful um, and a great opportunity to sort of put together an event that lets these really talented people in other, uh, other media kind of, you know, get fed from a fire hose for a couple days and, uh, you know, kind of get the essentials of game audio. Um, so that, that was the genesis of Game SoundCon. And when was that? And what was the first uh, show like? Uh, the first show uh, we had about 40 people at. That was in L.A. in 2009. Uh, we had uh, some great panelists. Marty O'Donnell gave my keynote. Um, I had an uh, impromptu panel that occurred at the last session because Niall Rogers signed up as an attendee. Hmm. Uh, and we got chatting, and all of a sudden we decided, you know, he might be more useful on the other side of the uh, of the uh, the presentation table. So we had a, a great. We also uh, invited the people from Harmonix to do some rock band network training for that. But yeah, it was about forty people down. Uh, you know, so it was uh, it was kind of a boutique feel. And then I was doing one or two a year in different cities. I did uh, in San Francisco as well in 2009. I did one out in New York. I did one up here in Seattle. But uh, three years ago, I kind of have settled into this once a year in L.A. Um, so, And then uh, three years ago, I also expanded quite a bit where we added hands-on training for FMOD and WISE uh, so you can come in for two days and just talk with the people who make these tools and, uh, and get hands-on training. And then also added the pro, what we call the pro track. Whereas the original game sound com was kind of a game audio 101, uh, the pro track is really what what are people on the cutting edge doing, or what are who are some of the big experts in the field talking about what it is that they do, whether it's you know sound design for Call of Duty or talking about uh, the state of 3D and HRTF or VR and AR uh, that's happening, physical modeling things, uh, advanced you know composing techniques and things like that. So over the years, what kind of evolution have you seen in terms of the nature of the talks? So besides going from a 101 to a more advanced and pro tracks, what other kinds of uh, changes have you seen basically in terms of the themes that were discussed and so yeah, on? Yeah, one of the big things that, we, that we've tried to do is track the industry pretty closely. You know, we, we do a survey of the industry, uh, which you can find on our website. We just released the uh, one for 2015, which tracks what are, you know, where, where are the jobs what kind of jobs are people doing? Um, and certainly one of the things that's changed uh, for, for game audio in general, and therefore in the nature of some of our talks, is the changing nature of the game industry in, its, in itself, right? When, when GameSoundCon first formed, I think I might have mentioned the App Store. <laughs> um, you know, maybe. Um, 
so game music back then was all about you know big orchestral scores mm. and halo uh, yeah. call of duty and big massive projects with eighty thousand lines of dialogue and so on that was and there were wow. lots of things we had to deal with that um certainly i've seen uh you know i've sort of had the talks tailor themselves a little bit more towards what uh somebody working in the industry is more likely to be doing now right for for every job composing halo there's probably literally 500 doing <laughs> sounds for smaller scale games and, and these aren't amateur games i'm not talking you know zero budget doesn't do anything these are a lot of these games are professionally developed much smaller scale than obviously a destiny or something like that like but the still, whole indie market. The whole the, the indie market. And, and I've kind of gravitated. I used to call it three. Then I called it four. And now I'm calling it five categories, right? There's AAA, uh, which, you know, the big blockbusters and have big budgets. And, you know, those aren't going anywhere. Professionally produced casual. I'm thinking games like from Zynga, from PopCap, uh, a lot of Nexon produced games, things like that. These are serious games with, you know, low to mid five-figure audio budgets. They're not shoestring budget games. Um, then you've got uh, sort of indie games, you know, or, or self-funded games, like Kickstarter games. They're, they're self-published, but they're not necessarily shoestring either, right? I, there was a Kickstarter game that uh, had a music budget of $100,000 because they wanted an orchestra. And so uh, half their Kickstarter budget went to music, I think it was. Um, then you've got sort of the indie game, which is uh, you know, that's the you know three three buddies get together and either they eat tuna fish or they do it in their spare time, but they really kind of want to make it as game developers. And maybe I might almost add to that now the amateur game, which is mm. in the same way that we have amateur painters and you know somebody goes and plays orchestra in the community orchestra but has no pretense of making them a career as a violinist well you have people making games kind of like that now too and every one of those needs music or and needs sound design and needs some kind of direction in terms of how to deal with the interactivity of it so as uh, back to your original question as game sound kind of evolved it's kind of gone from that first aspirational triple a space uh, to where we have a lot more talks now um, on the more, again, more likely to be immediately useful to people in that space. Uh, last year, we had a great talk by uh, Penka Guineva, which is uh, the myth that live orchestra is too expensive for my casual budget. Uh, this year, I've got a, a really great set of talks, one by um, Laura Cartman on composing with uh, virtual DAWs, followed oh, nice. up by John Rod breathing life into your virtual mixes. So just because a lot of game music, uh, despite the fact that more is more and more is being done with live musicians, a significant number amount of game music is done by the composer themselves, sitting at their DAW or sitting at their DAW with maybe an instrument they play themselves or, you know, one trumpet player that they bring in or something like that. So Also speaking about game music and orchestral stuff, what I, what I also love seeing is that game music is really changing and transitioning and it's not just the traditional three boxes anymore of like it's orchestral rock or electronic 
that, oh, right. you know, you know, you've a brilliant example being, you know, Bastion with Darren Korb of, of being like, Hey, I'm, you know, orchestral and composition and arrangement is not really my strengths. So I'm going to do something, you know, um, I'm going to use my limitations, use it to my advantage. Right. Look at what kind of game we're creating. Kind of like a music concrete thing and, or. Yeah. And, and, and do something that, you know, really works with the type of game it is. And then of course, you know, coining that acoustic frontier trip hop and kind of creating this <laughs> new genre. Um, and I love that of not just thinking like, these are the three boxes that we need to use to do our games. It's like, Hey, it's like serving the song. What kind of game are you doing? What would be the right type of music for it? Don't just sort of throw in, you know, big epic or orchestral stuff right. if that's not really appropriate. Yeah, and, and to be versatile. I, I actually also do some teaching up at DigiPen Institute of Technology. And an assignment I have for my students for this quarter is for this, you know, fake game. Uh, it, need, it has three different sections and it needs, uh, so I need main play and intense music in... Uh, epic style, in spooky horror style, and in cute pet style. <laughs> so, give me, uh, give me, you know, with with a nice common theme between the styles. But but you're out in the real world, and you're asked to do this game, and here's what they tell you. And so, give convince me on those three fronts. So there's definitely lots of uh, stylistic things that that you can do, or that. To be more precise, you're asked to do when you're out there doing these games. And just, you know, letting people know that, you know, even if they may not have certain skills, sure, it's great to get those skills, but that doesn't cut them off from working on a game. Absolutely. So, Brian, I'm really excited about Game SoundCon this year. Uh, I went last year and had a blast. I met a lot of people, did a lot of networking, and really, you uh, put on a fantastic show. It's very organized, and the talks were just really thrilling and interesting. Oh, thanks very much. That definitely speaks the, to the quality of the speakers that I get. They come in, and they just, they just all knock it out of the park every year. Absolutely. And this year, your keynote speaker is going to be Chance Thomas. Tell us uh, a little bit about Chance. And, you know, he's on our, on our team here at Designing Music Now as well. Yes, he is. Uh, he's been a fixture in game audio for probably two decades now. His, uh, in fact, his keynote is entitled Spoils of War, uh, 10 Gems from 20 Years in the Industry or something like that. Uh, so, uh, but he's, um, yeah, he's pushed the industry forward kind of quietly behind the scenes in a lot of different ways. It is through his uh, direct actions and driving force, for example, that game soundtracks are eligible for a Grammy. That's started by a committee that he formed on his own back in 98, I think it was, or 99. You know, it predates the Game Audio Network Guild. Um, you know, it was sort of the genesis of uh, the power of getting a group of game audio professionals together and seeing what they could do. In this case, it was lobbying Neris, the organization that puts on the Grammys, to make game soundtracks eligible for a Grammy. Uh, he's also been, uh, he's, first of all, he's a great speaker, a really good educator. He's, uh, he flies around all over the country giving talks at universities about composing for games. Um, and he also has a book that will be published. Uh, it'll be out momentarily. It, you know, every, every day I check to see if it's on Amazon yet. Um, it uh, mu write, I'm on writing music for video games. 
So I'm very looking forward to that. And I'm very looking forward to having him at uh, give the keynote this year. We're actually going Absolutely. to be uh, uh, having a couple of chapters from his book on designing music now. Isn't that correct, Dale? Yeah, we'll have a couple excerpts when we go live. Uh, first excerpt in the first week uh, for people to get a, a look, a peek inside the book, and then uh, another excerpt in the following week, along Excellent. with a discount code <laughs> for pre-ordering. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Brian, just also, you know, maybe talking a little bit more about Game SoundCon. Um, you know, we 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 sort of talked a little bit about um, what's going to happen, some of the material, some of the talks that's that's going to happen um in in this coming uh game sound con maybe can you talk a little bit more about that what uh t attendees can expect um to be different uh this year than last year and then also thinking about maybe what's the future for game sound con that's a great question uh that's something i think of from time to time first let's talk about this year uh we do have a couple of mini little um Many little focuses. I again, I like to each year have some kind of thematic uh, elements that kind of tie things together. Uh, you know, of, of course, for the people who are, you know, new to games or maybe have only done a couple of small games under their belt, uh, the essential track, essentials track, really um, does give them their 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 vegetables. That's that's their here's where you what you really need to know. As a launching point, uh, and we again we go over not only the tech stuff which we update every year uh, as platforms change and things like that, but especially the business climate and the way that changes. We'll be going over, uh, you know, some elements of this year's game audio industry survey. So, how how have, have contracts changed? How have people you know freelancing versus in house? What kinds of things are you expected to do as a composer? You know, do you need to do sound design as well is a big question I have a lot. So we always try and make sure that the Essentials track uh, has pretty up-to-date stuff on it. Uh, Dave Shumway this year is giving uh, a talk on how to integrate game audio into Unity, which is sort of that that you know, missing link that how do you go from having this wave file or having this interactive sound into it being in the game, right? Yeah. To do it in a movie, it's easy. You... Drag the, drag the sound file onto the point in the timeline you see it, and you're done. Well, it's not that easy with games, and so now with, with Unity being so popular, um, but we decided to have a special session on that. Uh, the hands-on sessions for FMOD and WISE, likewise, each of them have special sessions on how do I integrate into Unity or Unreal 4, Unreal Engine 4, uh, things like that. Um, so we want to always keep the... Uh, the essentials track kind of fresh. On the pro track, uh, we kind of mix it up between, uh, you know, the better part of a day of sound design and the better part of a day of, of music. And on the music front, again, uh, we're talking about how to take uh, virtual scores and really make virtual scores just sound incredibly awesome. I mentioned the talks by Laura. Uh, and John Rod. John Rod is always just a, a pleasure to listen to anything, any time he does anything. And Laura is so skilled. She, she does. She works so fast and makes such high quality stuff virtually. It's it's really frightening and scary. Um, but we also um, 
want to show some of the, the newer tools and the newer techniques that are people using. We're having this Dale guy come to the talk. Um, um, what's, what's, uh, what's his name? Uh, so he's going to talk. I think I know that guy. I think I know him. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very honored that you selected me this year. And what I will be talking about is essentially, from a composer's perspective, how to get adaptive music uh, into games with three different uh, examples from Elias, which is a very sort of new and up and coming uh, middleware, which is focused just on the music. They don't worry about sound effects. They've it's written by composers, for composers, very simple way of getting your adaptive scores into games. And then comparing that and contrasting it with FMOD and how that, how that would uh, get the, the same, essentially the same score uh, into an interactive uh, shape in order to get into the game and also WISE. And uh, also I'll be using a specific example that I'm working on in VR. It's a pretty fantastic game called uh, uh, Stampede, which is uh, we've built an interactive uh, score for that. And I'll be talking about how to work with VR, um, music and VR. That's right. And that ties in, that ties in nicely with uh, you know, some of the things we're doing in the sound effects track, which are two sessions specifically on VR. We're having some of the researchers down at UCSD come give a talk about how they've done some integration with between HRTF and higher order ambisonics, which is techy and cool as all heck. Um, as well as, you know, Scott Selfon's sort of bringing everybody up to, up to date on where we are for 3D audio. There are a number of 3D audio vendors that are coming. So definitely VR is one of the things that uh, we're focusing on as well. Um, and maybe for, uh, maybe for, uh, since you mentioned UCSD, uh, selfishly and, you know, my personal bias, maybe for next year's Game Sound Con, uh, we can bring some of the cool stuff we're doing at USC. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I would be more than happy to have that. Um, we'll have a sound off, sort of like a dance off, but... Oh, right. Or that rivalry thing going on of like yeah. USC with a UC school, you know. It's right, not right. football, it's game sound. It's game sound. Right. <laughs> game on. Do, do, you, do you think you could get the marching band in? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Actually, I, marching bands are one of the examples I give for interactive music. If you look at how a band or a college band director you know, directs the marching band during a football game. What's he doing? He's watching the game happen as things happen. Something happens on the first down. There's something the band plays. Something happens second down. They have to cut things off early, even though they want to wait to the end of the phrase because they have to stop because the game's starting. So there's actually a lot of similarities between marching bands and game audio, if you think about it. That's a terrific example. Wow. Awesome. So Game Sound Con, November 3rd and 4th in Los Angeles at the Millennium Biltmore. Uh, don't miss it. And uh, also you mentioned uh, the survey that you did, and I wanted to ask you a few questions about that uh, before we uh, head out here. And that is uh, salaries are on the rise, it looks like, according to your uh, surveys. Yeah, I was kind of surprised uh, to see that. So every year we... Uh, you know, put out a survey, and we, we try to pr promote it pretty heavily. Uh, this year we had over 600 respondents, and uh, lo and behold, the average salary reported by salaried composers, these are in-house, sorry, salaried game audio people, composers, sound designers, audio directors, whatever, the average salary bumped up almost $10,000 from about 70 to about 80 uh, compared with last year. Now, one 
caveat that has to be made. And I think that, and this is why actually in the report, I publish graphs that show you the distribution of salary ranges. Because what tends to happen uh, is there are two big spikes in the salary ranges for game audio professionals. One of them is at about 150,000. And the other is at around 55,000 or so. And what we've found is that the high salaries, of which there are quite a number, uh, tend to be correlated with job titles like audio directors or audio managers. You know, again, think think of the head of 343 Audio or the head of Blizzard Audio or some you know high level positions at some of the larger companies. And then the uh, the lower numbers tend to be people with fewer years experience in the industry. Uh, they're less likely to have a management kind of title. So you have to be a little bit careful when you just look at the average, right? Between mm -hmm. me, the two of you, and Bill Gates, mm -hmm. our average net worth is around $25 billion. Right. Um, yeah. But so the mean is slightly little, different. <laughs> the, 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 the median will be a little different, right? But uh, the, 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 the mean is, is pretty big. So you have to be a little bit careful. That's why, yeah. and, that, and actually, that's why when they talk about house prices, they talk about the median house price, not yeah, the average. I, I house meant to price. say that the median is different right. between right. us and Bill Gates would be close, so, yeah, much less. Yeah. yeah, but so we all we publish the mean and the median, and also breakout charts for these things as well. Fantastic. Um, and the other thing that I noticed in this survey was that there's about fifty-fifty between salaried and freelance. So yeah, that's up you know, quite a bit from last balance. year. Yeah, last year it was about 60-30. Um, and again, the, the, the numbers always don't add up to 100 because some people, uh, you know, if you're listed as hourly but working for a contractor, then that's a salary, but not for the game developer and things like that. But yeah, last year was about 60-30. This year was about 45-45. About um, 60-30 in, in favor of which? Freelance? Oh, and or? sorry, in favor of freelancers versus uh, right. in-house. Where so, so there do you appear to be more people reporting that they were full-time salaried employees of game companies. So do you find that game companies are respecting sound and audio more? I think they are. Um, I think a couple things have happened. You know, the the maturing of the mobile market has, has done a lot. Right? It used to be mobile games were usually just kind of these quick things that are thrown out, and the, the, the real game companies didn't get involved in them. Well, now obviously the... The real game, real game companies have taken a big look at these. They've dove in with, uh, you know, both feet, head first, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, and so you're seeing a lot more of these professionally developed casual games, professionally developed mobile games. Uh, again, it reminds me a lot of the scale of work of games when I was doing a lot of like Genesis games and Super Nintendo games where it's a team of, you know, 10 to 20 people working for nine to 12 months. Um, and so I think as more and more of those studios are, have popped up and publishers have been funding those, these studios were finding that it made more sense to bring some of their, um, if not all their creative work in-house, and certainly having a, an in-house person, an employee whose role is audio director. Um, I'm thinking companies like, you know, Fifth Cell here in Bellevue, uh, you know, they'll have, have an audio director um, who does a lot of creative work themselves. You know, Tracy Bush is, a, is a, obviously a stupendous, stupendous composer. 
but sometimes it's too much work for one person, so they'll augment with freelancers. So I think that's a model we're starting to see a little bit more of. Instead of the studio that had no audio at all and would only contract in, you're starting to see, hey, let's bring one person in-house. We'll manage all of our audio projects, you know, a couple of years that we do, and hire as needed, uh, even though they might be doing a lot of the creative work themselves. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing too. Definitely. But also, so I was just going to say, speaking of like the mobile market, what I think is really cool is, is you're seeing a lot of really experimental audio and interesting audio applications coming out on the mobile side. You know, like oh. Papa Sangre's, the blind sides, where we're having sonic adventure games and, you know, augmented audio apps, you know, Absolutely. Like, like dimensions. Um, and all sorts of interesting types types of things that are being done in the mobile space where where audio is getting pushed in cool ways, cool and innovative ways. Yeah, and, and one of the great things, of course, about these mobile platforms, especially when you combine it with, you know, first of all, you can buy it with things like Xcode, which were kind of easy to use, but now if you add Unity and the fact that these things are free for these indie developers, um, I actually dipped my toes in that about two or three years ago doing an audio-only game. Uh, called Ear Monsters, uh, which was, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, except with sound instead of with uh, with visuals. Um, and, uh, you know, I still get a reasonable number of downloads every month. My Apple report comes in, even though that was like three years ago. But it's just so easy to experiment and um, without, you know, a big giant effort going on, you just take your own sweat equity and put it into these things and see what you can put out. And you know, if you kind of the reason I did Ear Monsters was mostly just as a learning experience. I wanted to go end to end through the whole thing. You know, I, I did the art, I did the audio, I did the oh, programming. Wow. Um, well, nice thing about doing an audio game is the art can doesn't have to be. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, that's true. Did you did you use uh, Pure Data or Max MSP? Or nope, uh, it's all just raw code. Okay. Uh, just all it's all Objective C, which I really learned to dislike. <laughs> so that, that was my lesson of your monsters is like gosh i really don't like objective c <laughs> um, so another thing from the survey i saw was that uh both implementate the, a lot of sound designers and uh composers are doing the implementing as well so they're having to know more about fmod and wise and elias and things like that and i think you know that also ties into what you do at game SoundCon in terms of those tracks that allow people to learn those tools yeah, and, uh, and where it used to be that people would stumble over these things as they were coming into games, now it really is something that is a differentiator. Uh, and with so many people wanting to get into games, that's something. I know of uh, two different companies that now use things like FMOD experience, WISE experience, maybe Unity scripting experience mm -hmm. as a sorting criteria, right? If you get 100 resumes through HR and 95 of them don't have any of those, and five of them do, they looked at the five, yeah. and they said, you know, sorry, we weren't, we don't have time to look at all of these. We, we need somebody that can hit the ground running. Uh, we need, sorry, my phone's ringing. We need somebody that can hit the ground running. Uh, we need somebody who can be productive on day one, and we don't have to handle through what is interactive audio and how do the tool, these tools work. Or how do you stick a sound on an object in Unity? These are tasks that more and more game audio professionals are being asked to do. 
Now, the one caveat I would say there is, uh, which I have to catch myself at sometimes, is at the end of the day, it's about the sound. It's exactly. about the music. Um, all the technical chops in the world won't help you if you don't have something fundamental to work with. And, you know, if you're in Los Angeles, picture yourself in a room full of the top thousand composers in L.A., and if you can look around that room and, and accurately say, I'm at one of the best five to ten of these in the whole room, then forget that technical stuff. Don't waste yeah. your time on FMOD. Don't do wise. No, you just no, go exactly. write music, exactly. and, and that's what you will be great at. But if you're not one of those ten out of a thousand, then it can be really helpful to have these skills on top of what you do. For sure, because I've I've worked on the other side of the, of the coin where, you know, it was very much like, hey, we will teach you the tools. We just want someone who's very creative and very artistic and understands how to use audio as a design and storytelling mechanic. Because um, far too often, you know, I've worked with folks who had really great technical chops, but then it was like, hey, let's do something with some very artful intent here. Um, let's treat sound as something much more than just an asset. And then I get like the deer in the headlights look, you know, like mm -hmm. Chanel, just mm -hmm. tell me like what to implement and what to hook up, you know? So on my side of the fence, yeah, I'm a big appreciator of, of the whole, the art and, and the craft and, and, and making sure that that is always the number one you know, important thing, but do agree yeah. with you for sort of like mass mainstream. It's great to have as many skill sets as possible. Just like, I mean, I believe that composers should understand sound design. Right. As well. Yeah. And, that... um, so, I mean, what, you know, kind of what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I definitely get composers who come to me and say, well, I think maybe we should learn sound design because there's all sorts of jobs that we're losing because we don't really understand how to work with sound, even though the two are very closely related, you know. Right. Um, I, I get this question a lot, too. And uh, again, especially in the smaller games, the smaller companies, um, there is a tendency to want for them to want to hire one person mm -hmm. just to deal with every noise that comes out of their game. Um, and so if either you just don't want to do sound design or you can't partner with somebody to do sound design with you, that's, you know, you know from a from a business perspective, that's a lost opportunity to not be able to say yes to that gig because a lot of gigs are out there that are that are like that. That, hey, you're the sound person. We want you to do the music and the sound design and record the VO and and I you know we were talking about the two sides of the brain before the creative and the technical. Most game sound people I know also have this third side of the brain, which is they're kind of entrepreneurial. Um and the entrepreneurial side of you really has to say, I need to be able to deliver what the people want, what the clients want. And clients, yes. a lot of times, will want one-stop shopping. Yes. Now, of course, as games get bigger and more specialized, they're much more likely to say to hire a, simply a composer or simply a sound designer or simply a technical audio implementer or something like that. But again, for a large swath of games that are being created, uh, you'll be asked to do it all. And... It's actually can be quite liberating. Um, I, I love doing games of that order of magnitude because it allows you to do this exceptionally tight integration between music and sound sure. design. And 
I know that in this part of the game, I'm going to have all the explosions. I won't write any string basses or cellos or timpani Absolutely. for that part. Um, or, or even do some of the, I mean, some of the stuff that um, Guy Whitmore has been doing at PopCap, where there's this blurring of the, di the difference between music and sound design because their sound effects get transposed to the key of the underlying music or they're quantized to eighth note boundaries and things like that. Um, there's actually a pinball machine I did like back in 1988 where we did all that stuff and it was a blast because you having complete control of the sonic package you can decide yourself what at what point is being informational with your sound effects more important or which point is yeah. just getting your heart pumping from the music more important well, and have total control i'm going to need to talk to you more about that at another mm -hmm. time brian because i'm actually uh for a future article for Designing Music Now, I'm doing a, a multi-part series on blurring the lines between sound design and uh, music. So we'll have to we'll have to chat more about that. Oh, we'll definitely chat about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my big, one of the saddest things I've seen about the industry in the last thirty years is the fact that there are some of these things we were doing in pinball machines thirty years ago that we're still not doing now. Mm. So that somehow when we when we made the jump. To from synthesized to much higher production value, it's you know certainly is the right call. Don't get me wrong with that, but there's some things that we lost. Yeah, that people like Guy Whitmore, people like yourself, uh, Chanel, people that uh, you know have kind of tried to get back in either with you know direct music, yeah, or now the stuff that is being done at PopCap where. Um, and even some simple things, like I'm thinking, to, to, again, this Black Knight 2000 game, there were periods in the game where the game would stop what it was doing and wait for a couple beats until the music hit an appropriate boundary, and then the game would continue so that the change in state of the game matched the timing of the music. Yeah. And if you mention having a game wait for music today, it's like you still get looked like you're crazy. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and the game designer who uh, stuck that in, uh, who programmed that in, was Ed Boone, who created Mortal Kombat. So it's not like he's not savvy of game design. <laughs> That's for sure. Yep. So. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, we could talk about this for hours. Yeah. You know, about how, like, like I said, how but... some things have progressed, some things have kind of stood still, and some things have yeah. kind of gone backwards you know like there's exactly. things yeah that we were all doing super innovative and it's like wait what why are we, why well, are and, we still doing and i that? think <laughs> and, and there there are cases where you have the luxury of having that kind of innovation time yeah right where you can go and iterate and try things out and do a whole bunch of custom coding for something and there are times where the, the schedule may be more important or things like that so it's it's sort of yeah this reminds me of the kind of conversations we would have at game sound con it's like it's we get started talking about random topics and, you know, whether it's at, after a session's over or at the, the networking mixer in the evening after the first day. And we'll just start talking about this stuff and you can't get us to shut up about it. It, it really is that way. And it is so much fun. And the last question I have for you on the survey, and this ties into Game SoundCon as well, is about the section that you did in the survey about how composers and sound designers got work. And it turns out the two best things were networking at conventions and things like that, and also uh, referrals. Do you want to talk about that just briefly? Yeah. Um, 
this was a, a specific question that was new this year, so I don't have comparison data from last year. Uh, but I wanted to figure out how, you know, for employees, how did they get the land of their current salary position? And for freelancers, I asked, how did they get the last job that they worked on? Mm -hmm. And um, for the salary positions, if I recall correctly, it was about one in five, so only about 20% was, oh, I submitted an application where I saw a job opening. Mm -hmm. um, and for freelancers, I think it was around nine in 10 freelancing jobs were gotten because of someone they knew or someone they had worked with. Mm. Um, I hadn't, ex I expected it to be high, I hadn't expected it to be quite that high. So either somebody I worked with before, um, somebody worked in the, obviously the pre game I just did, uh, somebody whom I met at a networking event or a mixer or a conference or something like that. And ju just that, that whole notion of getting connected and being, becoming part of the industry uh, is really so very important. I know uh, uh, film composers are told, hey, go out and meet film directors. Well, for game audio, it, it's, I think it's a lot more incestuous, incestuous than that. Uh, you know, today, the uh, competing composer you're talking to today, um, because there are a lot more employee jobs in games than there are in film, in film there are none, in games there are a lot, Getting to know and becoming respected by your your peers and your colleagues can be really really useful. Uh, again, maybe today me and you are freelancers and we're you know we're we're co op you know politely competing for gigs, but then you get hired by EA or you get hired by Fifth Cell or Microsoft or something like that, and now you're suddenly in the role of having to hire uh, people who whose shoes you were in six months ago. And so there's a lot of importance uh, being able to done that uh, with that there, and just that it's a small industry, yeah. right? People know that it's funny that the games I'm working on right now, the pinball machine, it, mm -hmm. you know, that was a call from people that I hadn't seen in 20 years. Um, but they, I mean, they knew how much I love pinball, and the timing was right, and so, uh, and even the, the next on game I'm working on, um, that was I knew John Shepard. Uh, who, of course, was COO of Zynga. He was a VP at Microsoft. Uh, I met him for the first time when he was right out of college as a cubicle programmer working on Madden 93. And that's how I met him, doing the sounds uh, for that game with him. So it's very, very much... Uh, yeah. now, which is frustrating for new people coming in, but it's also an opportunity that you can't just sit there in your studio and write music and write music and write music and put it on your website. Yeah. Or, or spam a Facebook group saying, check out my new track. That's not how you get gigs. You get gigs mm -hmm. by becoming a member of the community and contributing positively to that community mm -hmm. and becoming a respected member of that community. Mm -hmm. And now that's when your phone starts to ring. Yeah. Get, yeah. Get out of the sound dungeon. Get out of the, you know, create relationships. Get out and network. As I like to say, right. I, I don't like the old field of dreams things. If they build it, if I build it, they will come. That's not true. You need to if, if, promote yourself. You need to network. You need to, yes, right. become a real positive contributor to the community. Yeah. And networking in the right way, right? Yeah. Networking isn't, here's my demo, hire me. Nice to meet you. Which I've practically had people do to me. Um, 
you know, networking is a process that takes years or maybe even a lifetime. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. And you plant these seeds by contributing positively to the community little by little, and those seeds sprout over the course of your career. Well, Brian, it has been an honor to talk to you today. You really exemplify game audio in every aspect, right brain, left brain, entrepreneur, <laughs> Uh, the way that you have built Game SoundCon and made it the premier audio event in the world. Um, really, really impressive uh, life that you've had, and it's uh, no wonder that you won the uh, Game Audio Network Guild's Lifetime Achievement Award a few years back. So, Oh, actually, in 2008. So you've, you've uh, even outdone yourself more since then. <laughs> <laughs> so it is really an honor to have you here, and uh, we are looking forward to seeing you uh, next month at Game SoundCon. Thank you very much. I look forward to good things from you guys. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Designing Music Now podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of creating music for video games and interactive media. Please visit us at designingmusicnow.com for more info, news, and reviews on this subject. We would love to hear from you.